We live in a throwaway culture. People are too often defined by what they do or own. They're treated as means to an end or cogs in a machine. What goes missing is a deep sense of personhood, the belief that all humans are unique subjects with inherent worth and the right to self-determination and authentic communication with others. And I quote from the publicity for a new IVP America book by our very special guest on the podcast this time, Paul Lewis. Is it pronounced Lewis, Paul? Yes, Lewis. Paul Lewis Metzger. And uh, the new book from IVP is called More Than Things, a personalist ethics for throwaway culture. Now, uh, Paul is Professor of Christian Theology and Theology of Culture at Multnomah University and Seminary in Portland, Oregon in the States, and Director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins. He's the author of a number of books, and this new one is certainly a, um, a thought-provoking read, and I'm thrilled to have Paul with us on the show this time. Paul, hi, welcome from the States. Uh, thank you so much, Brent. It's an honor to be with you, and I'm really looking forward to the interview and to uh, the ongoing dialogue that will be um, served through this discussion. Well, I hope so. There's plenty, certainly plenty of things to dialogue about. My goodness me, there is. Now, how have we arrived at this point? Why does our culture treat us like a thing or a commodity? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think there are many strands that lead to it. As you know from the book, I draw attention to Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement from his Vietnam War sermon, April 4th, 1967, where he talks about this, this thrust of the, the three-headed monster of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. And he talks there about, we need to move from this culture of things to persons. And he was schooled as part of the personalist tradition, uh, Pope John Paul II as well, different strands, but uh, drawing from the the wealth of it you know some would argue that uh you know the christian tradition uh is where uh the personalist thrust uh gets its legs uh, historically though one can also argue that there is a personalism within the eastern context as well you see personalist threads in uh non-western religious traditions and the like uh, so it's not just the judeo-christian tradition but i think you know, it's certainly pivotal and catalytic in that regard, especially Trinitarian thought. And Hansers von Balthasar and others make reference to that in terms of Trinitarianism. Um, that said, in as as I would go further in the modern period, you see this with Nietzsche. You see precursors before Nietzsche, where this radical individualism, uh, with the emphasis on trying to promote the individual, actually lost sight of the person in the midst of it. And so, you know, I think one could go in a variety of directions, whether it's uh, certain aspects of the Industrial Revolution, uh, the Newtonian paradigm with, as David Brooks talks about, the cog and the machine, I, I think Western philosophical thought forms. So, but they all merge today. Uh, Jacques Ellul, Wendell Berry and others um, talk about this, Barbara Johnson. So there, there are a lot of people, regardless of whether they call themselves personalists, are seeing the need to emphasize that we are more than things. So hope, hopefully that's at least a somewhat sufficient answer to your excellent question. Yes, it is. Uh, now, what makes us a person? What makes mm. you a person? What makes me a person? Why are we so special? Mm. Or are we indeed? Some would argue we're not. Right, right. And um, as you know, Brent, from the book, I draw attention to Salmate. And, uh, you know, the, the thrust in Sigmund Freud is that 
we're not persons uh, or we're not significant as humans. Um, and his historiography, which is still with us, even if some would say his own thought forms are out of date, his historiography is still very much in place. And others have critiqued it. Ronald Numbers in his historiography book uh, with Harvard Press and others have talked about this with Galileo Goes on Trial. And uh, but um, Sigmund Freud said that the Copernican Revolution uh, Darwin's uh, theory of evolution and his own psychoanalysis research has basically brought an end to humanity being all that significant in the universe. And I, I was especially struck at looking at Psalmade in Hebrews 2 in light of Freud's claims. And, you know, Copernicus's revolution, I don't think, has anything to do with discounting humanity at the center, because for Aristotle and Dante, being at the center was not a good thing. Um, and uh, but rather, it's we're at the center of God's affections, re regardless of how significant we are in comparison with the heavens. And Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, make mention of it. So it's both that we're created in the image of God. Uh, from a Judeo-Christian vantage point, we are the pinnacle of creation, not over against the creation as a whole, but in relationship to the whole creation. And then Psalm 2 is picked up by Hebrews 8 in a beautiful manner, where uh, the, the writer of Hebrews shows that Jesus is the ground, the grid, and the goal, the, the telos for humanity's sake of creation, that while we don't see humanity as having this prized place presently in the current situation of the culture of that day, yet we see Jesus. We see Jesus who is a foretaste of our being the pinnacle in God's schema eschatologically. And so the image of God creation and also the Christological vein of really showing that we are through Christ uh, that pinnacle with the creation as a whole, not over against it, as I said. So again, excellent questions uh, that you're framing for me right out of the gate. <laughs> um, we've talking about personalism. I better ask you, what is personalism? Well, personalism is the emphasis that at the core of human identity or of all identity is that life is personal. Uh, life is ultimately personal. And, uh, you know, King talked about it from the vantage point of he believed that there was a personal ground, not a malignant or hostile ground, but a very benevolent ground to our being uh, in his work. And uh, others have made note of that similar trajectory. But personalism is really emphasizing that the person is at the forefront of all philosophical, theological, societal thinking. Uh, a recent work that I think is just so you know, out of the box and so stellar is Christian Smith's What is a Person, where he talks about in the social sciences, a loss of the person as front and center. We'll talk about our consumer appetites, uh, what we are biologically, what we are, and it's important to talk about these things, what we are biologically, what we are in terms of our economic frame of reference, our racial and gendered identity. That's all part of it. But that is never all of the, of what we are. We are more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. We are persons and we emerge from all of these things as persons. So personhood being at the center of our identity. And when I think of a person, it's that we are inviolable, that even if, if we sin against ourselves and against one another, still our, our identity as persons could not be ultimately violated because we're creating the image of God from my Judeo-Christian vantage point. We are unique, each one of us. We're unfathomable and mysterious in worth, and that we're not replaceable. We're not cogs in a machine. Um, we are, as David Brooks says in his uh, analysis of Interstellar, 
we are like particles and waves in a vast ecosystem. We're persons and uh, our identity and our, our, our view of all of life must be framed interpersonally so that even when I'm engaging animals, uh, I engage animals hopefully in a humane way that uh, to treat animals in an inhumane way hurts their identity and hurts our identity in relationship to them, in our case, as human persons. So feel free to um, ask for further clarity on this. It's a very complex phenomenon, but at the heart of it all, the person, in terms of some of what I've just out outlined with inviolable, incommunicable, unrepeatable identity, it's, it's an ultimate mystery. But we are creating the image of God, uh, male and female, uh, in relationship to one another, we have our own agency as individuals, but never over against, but always in relationship to one another. Yes, this is very relevant in, in an age of AI. I mean, the last podcast, mm. that, the last interview I did was on artificial intelligence and tran transhumanism. I'm going to ask you this question too. Uh, does transhumanism threaten our personhood? Well, I certainly think it can. Uh, you know, I don't think that at this juncture I want to give a definitive answer. Things are so much in process. And, you know, and certainly some transhumanists will say, look, we've always been developing in ways with, you know, implementations to help us out when we have disabilities or alternative abilities or just, you know, eyeglasses or what have you, or, um, you know, uh, artificial limbs, you know, so we've always been in a sense, trying to foster, you know, improving ourselves, but to talk about a different essence, um, you know, if that's where, where we're no longer human, I'd be extremely cautious about that kind of move. And as Michael Gorman and Ron Cole Turner, one of the endorsers of the book, talk about kenosis is theosis. This is Ron Cole Turner reflecting on Michael Gorman's work, that any type of sense of human identity must not, from a Christian vantage point, ever go beyond the sense that uh, we are who we are ultimately in our glorious humans in service to one another, uh, not in any way where we're trying to elevate ourselves uh, over again. So I think I'd, I'd want to look at what is being proposed by way of transhumanism, but our identity must ultimately be seen in terms of theosis and kenosis, that when Christ divinizes us, to use the Eastern categories, or ultimately humanizes us, it's to perfect us in service to one another and to God. And so I'd, I'd always want that good Bardian check, you know, in terms of his his profound church dogmatics theology about where our glory is found and even God's glory is found. Yes, uh, I suspect it may end badly, transhumanism, and it's more extreme forms in it, but I could be wrong, of course. You usually am. You have a section in the book on uh, special needs people and disabilities, and I, I love this section of the book. How does our throwaway culture, do you think, affect our view of people with disabilities, for example. I mean, you write about folk with Down syndrome, wonderful Down mm -hmm. syndrome people. Right. So, you know, I, I engage and I, I try not to do it in any kind of like gotcha approach to Richard Dawkins. But uh, in in chapter three, and I deal with him elsewhere, too, where he had this discussion, I think it was on Twitter or something to that effect, where someone asked if you had a Down syndrome fetus, you know, would you abort? Or if someone does, would you recommend that they abort? And he said, I would because they can't experience the pleasure of life and enjoy life like the rest of us can. And, you know, he meant no harm. And, you know, I know a lot of people go after him as one of the new atheists and, you know, one of the four 
horsemen of the apocalypse. But, you know, I think we have to go beyond that kind of rhetorical flurry. I'm just trying to engage him on his terms. And he's, he calls himself basically a utilitarian. You know, it's about the, the ultimate pleasure, maximum pleasure for the individual and beyond. And so I engage in there. But, you know, the Down syndrome paradox, the disability, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Down syndrome uh, advantage, disability uh, paradox, language along those lines, that if if one does the statistics, at least when it comes to Down syndrome, uh, family members uh, of, of individuals with Down syndrome and Down syndrome individuals themselves experience life with a quality of life often far better than the rest of us. So I, I was trying to even take it on, not, not to take him on so much, but to take the argument on, on his utilitarian basis, pleasure calculus, and say, well, at least according to many scientific reports, uh, that wouldn't hold, at least when we're talking about Down syndrome. And we could talk about other disabilities or alternative abilities. There's so many terms that are used and people don't agree on the terms, even within uh, the community of research. But, you know, I think beyond that matter of even dealing with pleasure calculus and things of that sort, again, from a Judeo-Christian vantage point, our worth and our dignity is not added on, it's indelible. And so I don't think we should ultimately look at ourselves by way of our capacities. When I think of personalism, while capacities are part of what our persons are, all of us are going to be at a loss for capacities at some point, if we think about it. I, I already am in many ways, always so have I. been in certain <laughs> ways. And again, you know, the, 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 the way in which we even frame the discussion is, is fraught with, um, with problems. But that said, um, as you know from reading the book, you know, my son endured a catastrophic brain injury uh, back in January of 21. And I, I was so touched when one of the, the lead nurses at the facility said, we, even in the summer, we want to cover him with sheet as hot as it might get. And, uh, you know, even though he has air conditioning in the realm, in the room, saying we, we want to affirm his dignity. And I want to ask her, so like, when you talk about dignity, you know, that's beautiful. I, I, I resonate. Now, I don't even know what her value system is, ultimately. But instinctively, I think in one sense or another, everyone's really a personalist because we none of us want to be treated as a thing, even though we often treat one another as things. We all want to be treated with that worth and dignity. And so she said, we want to affirm his dignity. And I think the dignity is inherent for Christian Smith. Uh, dignity is to our identity as wetness is to water. We can't really articulate what wetness is, but we can we can experience it, so to speak, and like... And I think that dignity is indelible. So for an individual with a, a disability or an alternative ability, whatever you want to call it, um, it can even be relative to cultural context, you know, that, you know, what's the society at large? So it's not just a nature thing, it's a nurture thing. And so I, I want to definitely see that we're more than our capacities, you know, and that uh, uh, it's it's far more to consider us by way of our uniqueness as humans creating the image of God in relationship to one another than by any capacity. And believe me, that helps me a great deal when I look at my son every time I visit and engage him. Uh, he's my son. Uh, and other people in that facility are humans. Uh, the people I pass on the way to, um, to work, they're humans, uh, regardless of their capacities, regardless of what car they drive, regardless if they cut me off and hopefully I don't cut them off. Uh, we're persons, and uh, we need to treat one another as that. So at any point, again, Brent, I like dialogue. Feel free to come back if you don't feel like I've 
answered sufficiently the question. No, that's fine. I was just going to comment that I think um, special needs people have a great deal to to offer us, and we, we well, learn and so much. And they they I yeah. I feel they're very very special. They teach us something very special. Oh, absolutely. And and you know even though I don't want to identify their significance with that they benefit us, it is true as you so well put it that we are blessed by them to take them out of the equation, so to speak, of the calculus of human flourishing is to diminish our identity because, you know, for example, to see how people survive and thrive to build resilience amid their struggles, uh, they're often stronger than we are. Their creativity um, even my son, with his minimally conscious state, I've learned a ton from him. And it's not in a morbid way. Uh, it's in a deeply mystical and mysterious way. So um, I, I completely agree with you. We, where would we be? Like with space exploration, the last chapter, I, I, I asked my students this. If you only had 100 people, you get into space. It's in the study guide that I just finished up that'll be there for readers at some point, hopefully in the next few weeks. Uh, I asked my students, if you had 100 people you could send into space, who would they be? Would you send people with Down syndrome into space as far as part as that 100? Autism, et cetera, et cetera. Or it would only be the Gordon Geckos, the Elon Musk, um, the Stephen Hawkins and company. We'd be at a deficit if if people uh, with what we call special needs weren't there because they often have more compassion. They often have more resilience. Um, they probably would survive better than the, the rest of us. And we would have no basis to learn compassion. As Michael Sandel says, it's like a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. So if if it's only the superpowers that get to go, we're in huge trouble as, as a race, as a species. So space exploration is all about eschatology. <laughs> yes, I'm going to ask <laughs> the you The last about... will be first. The I'm... last will be first. Ab absolutely. I'm going to ask. I cannot resist asking you some questions about space exploration in a minute. But before we get to space exploration, another hot potato of a topic these days, euthanasia. Now, how do we think about something like euthanasia in a throwaway culture? Well, complex issues, <laughs> once oh, again. Oh, for sure. And as, as you know from the book, I, I don't, at least I attempt not to take some kind of uh, approach that's quick fix and easily resolve it. I, I try and account for the best in the arguments of, of people who will promote a form of euthanasia. And I think the, the terminology is so slippery at, at times. And, and so it's, it's, it's really complex, even delving into the terminology. And I tried to do that in the book and get at the various ways of thinking of euthanasia and also the different categories uh, of euthanasia. But in my son's case, if you don't mind me using that example, because it's it really is, you know, baptism with fire for us, there, there were medical leaders who were basically saying, pull the plug early on because he's not going to live a meaningful life. And, uh, you know, and there are, again, different ways in which one pulls the plug, so to speak. But we've had one of the premier medical ethicists in the country, one of the premier palliative care specialists um, who served as a family advisor to us. You know, some of the things he would say to help us engage this subject uh, are things like, don't impose your sense of suffering or your suffering on Christopher. Try to account for what Christopher experiences in his minimally conscious state and what Christopher wants um, and what Christopher sees as meaningful. 
Certainly, I don't think before the injury, Chris would have ever wanted to be in this state. But things change dramatically for any of us when we're in that state. And so I just think trying to account for quality of life, not just quantity of life. And with quality of life, contrary to some in the the camp, like with Joseph Fletcher, saying quality of life to me is also about sanctity of life. And it's it's not simply about minimizing suffering. I mean, some forms of suffering are important for us to go through. We don't want to be morbid about it and just, you know, have undue suffering. But I think for some, it's like suffering is the problem throughout. And I think, no, uh, there it's not unnecessary suffering, but suffering can be a great means to attain a quality of life. And so to maximize health, to maximize flourishing, to minimize suffering is key, but we still have to get at what is uh, the meaning of suffering and what kind of suffering are we talking about. So uh, there's a lot more in the book, but I go into all the terminology and and, and many of the arguments uh, one way or another on the subject. Uh, well, we could talk about lots of other things. Drone warfare comes up in your book and creation care, very relevant in this time. And I may ask you something about that if we have time, but I've, let's come on and deal with the space issue because I think this is this is the last chapter in your book, isn't it? Or, yeah, so- and for, for good reason, because, mm. you know, as I, as I stated at the outset, you know, the first major section after the foundations is dealing with the, from the beginning of the life as with abortion to euthanasia, end of life kind of topics. And then closer to home with race in the country, all the way to space exploration, other worlds. So I was I was trying to frame these thematically in terms of where we are to where we're going. Mm. And as I said, space exploration often is in the secular camp, uh, an alternative eschatology. Oh, absolutely. And you you write some fascinating things about it. Can I ask you where our ideals about space exploration come from? Our ideals, uh, mm-hmm. such as what we what what we ultimately value. Why in, do in we, why of, do we want to do it? You know, why is it yeah. held up as being something so incredible that we've got to do this? Well, great question. I think there could be many reasons. One, fascination. I've worked with some NASA scientists over um, the years, some astrophysicists and astronomers, and I've been fascinated with just their sense of wonder. Uh, having worked with the American Association for the Advancement of Science with a seminary, Science for Seminaries grant, had the privilege of listening to uh, some of them uh, discuss it. And they were, you know, I'm thinking of in particular one devout Christian who's a NASA scientist. When when she would talk about space exploration, it was almost like she was a child. It just the the sense of wonder. And and for her, I think it's just the sense of wonder because, you know, we the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And so I, I think that's a good quality, to say the least. That sense of wonder, when I find in the sciences, the sense of wonder, regardless of a person, whether they're a, a theist, a believer of any kind, or a secularist, that sense of wonder is a point of connection. So I think that's one factor. I can think it's, I, I think it can also be a sign of escape. Uh, I love I love watching little uh, clips of Keith Richards being interviewed. I, I love the Rolling Stones, especially Keith Richards. And, uh, you know, they were asking Keith, you know, are there aliens? And, uh, and you know, and, and and Keith was saying, well, I sure hope so. We're in we're in a bit of we're in a we're in big trouble. You know, we, we could use some help. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe, but we might not be helped by beings from other planets. It might just be the opposite. But if we're looking elsewhere for our solution, I mean, one could say, well, aren't we doing that with God? 
it depends on what kind of eschatology or study of the future we have. I mean, is it escapist or is it really to help us engage better to live now in light of what will be to bring the future into the present? So I think it can be escapism. I think it'd be just a sense of wonder. Uh, I think it can be the matter of uh, it actually with astrobiology uh, and the like, it can actually help us to understand Earth better. And to, I mean, a lot of discoveries we've had through space exploration have, have helped us in the sciences to, to benefit us here more below. So I think that, again, is a positive quality, escapism being the only negative quality that I'm alluding to here. So, yeah, great questions. You you know, your questions require long, detailed answers. They're not fill in the blank, which I really appreciate, Brent. I try and I try and write questions that um, you may not get asked by by other people. I don't know whether yes. I succeed or not. But I've got a quote from your book. You, you write about space exploration. You're talking about the ethics of it, and you write the moral to the story is that human insecurity leads to hyper security, and with it a fear of scarcity that leads us to conquer and exploit the universe. Now it's a fascinating mm. statement. Can you unpack that for us, please, in about the two minutes we've got left, or three minutes? Sounds good. So, um, you know, in part, whether I was alluding to him in this uh, this context, but he's certainly in the back of my mind, Peter Harrison's work dealing with Lynn White's thesis about, you know, Christianity being part of the problem for our environmental disarray today. Peter Harrison says that, you know, it was actually, one, one can make a good case that was only with the loss of humanity at the center in the modern period, the Judeo-Christian framework. Uh, with what you see in Freud's historiography and like, that leads toward this sense of what I'm going to call here and in that quote, hypersecurity. When when we have insecurity, we easily take matters into our own hands. And so if we don't feel secure in light of God's affection, I love Luther, God's love creates the attraction. Our attractors does not create God's love. That's That's the gospel. But when we lose that sense of security that God loves us and cares for us, that what some would call secure attachment, we have to take matters or we think we have to take matters into our own hands. And that hypersecurity will lead toward a fear of scarcity rather than, to use Brueggemann's language, uh, a sense of God's abundance um, in the promised land. So that's in part what I have in mind there. Yes. Final question, Paul. I think it's the final question. Uh, to sum it all up, really. How do we then live as more than things? Well, I, I think it, it comes down to when I go to the grocery store today or to the the shopping mall and I'm in line to purchase something. Am I looking at that uh, individual there as a means to an end of getting what I want when I want it at the least cost to myself? Or do I see them as persons that while we might exchange goods and services, that exchange must never replace the interconnection that we have as persons. Someone may have accidentally cut me off on the road today, and I thought, I'm going into an interview. I, I'm not going to entertain getting into a, a squabble with this person driving down the road. I thought, I'm talking about persons, not things. And, and I thought, you know, to guard against road rage, to go to my son's bedside and see him as having uh, indelible worth, unfathomable worth. I said to him last night, Christopher, if I had one son in the world, it would be you. Um, you are, my, and he is my only son, and I and I cherish him as I always have. Um, he is unique, and right now he is unfathomable in this current state. So those are just a few examples of what this looks like. But to treat people as more than their economic status, 
more, not that it's unimportant, but their biological status, their racial status, their gender status, it's all part of us as biological social beings, but we're still more than that. And we're in fact, I need to try and inquire with open questions like you're doing to ask people why, not fill in the blank, but why do you think this? Tell me more, to be curious, to be inquisitive, not inquisitional. That's all bound up with uh, treating people as persons, not as things. Yes, and certainly in New Zealand where I am, we hear, and I've no doubt in the States and other countries, we hear so much about the fact that people don't engage one another now in conversation uh, with mm. with these sorts of questions. And I think it's a, a great loss for society and very sad. Anyway, Paul Metzger, uh, Professor of Christian Theology and Theology of Culture at Multnomah University and Seminary in Portland, Oregon in the States. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book is called More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. It's published by our good friends at IVP, InterVarsity Press in America, and it is a deep and profound work. It really is, and you'll be challenged by it. I loved it. I'm, I'm going to go away and read it again at some point because I didn't have time while I was preparing for the interview to read it in the depth that I think it really merits, but it is fabulous. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Paul, thank you so much for your time. And Brent, thank you so much for your deep inquiry and uh, personal connection today. I really appreciate you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>